Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 361 for January 29th, 2024. Got a news show for you today. It's kind of also a one-week-late data privacy week show. My tip of the week today will kind of go over some of my data privacy checklist items, some of your top privacy tips. And before we get to the news, a couple quick announcements. Uh, first of all, I got a really nice shout-out from Proton, the folks that make Proton Mail and Proton VPN and all the other great Proton products. Out of nowhere, I didn't know this was coming. Uh, I Now, I kind of correspond with Andy Yen, but out of nowhere, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Mastodon, the official Proton account came out and recommended my book uh, for their privacy reading list, which is a pretty short list and a pretty good set of company to be in, to be honest. So I, I was very, very pleased with that and got a lot of great responses and hopefully reached a lot of new people. So that was that was wonderful. Also, I, I told you that Jeff Jockish was doing a annual survey of the best privacy podcasts, and uh, my podcast was on his list and was voted up quite well, actually. It turned out to, uh, he has a couple different categories, the, the top crossover privacy podcasts, and I think by crossover, he means not just privacy, so privacy and security, for example. So I came in fourth in his top crossover privacy podcast for 2013. That was fantastic right behind Darknet Diaries. So that's pretty darn good company there as well. And Jeff took some other opinions, uh, one of which was Best Interviewer, and I came in sixth in that list. And honestly, I'm very, very happy with that because I would venture to say that a lot of the people who took his thing hadn't heard of me yet. So uh, I'm hoping maybe next year to uh, to jump up on that list. But regardless, I, I'm very happy with those results. That's, that's fantastic. And again, should get this podcast in front of a lot of new listeners. So that, that's wonderful. Speaking of surveys, you have just a few days left. I'm going to run this till the end of January to answer my annual listener survey. I only do it once a year and it's very, very important to me. I really want to hear from you. Uh, and that includes the people who like what I'm doing because I want to hear, make sure I just don't hear from people who want me to change something. I want to hear from the people who like what I'm doing so I know to keep doing those things. So anyway, it's really easy to get to. Just go to fdsd.me slash survey 2024, all lowercase. That's not that long. It's pretty easy to fill out. And I will be picking 10 random respondents to get a free physical copy of my book. And that includes some international shipping as well. I don't know if I can go every quarter of the planet, but I should be able to reach most places. So, so hey, if you want a free copy of my book, all 600 pages sent to your door, just fill out the survey and leave me some sort of an email address where I can contact you to let you know if you've won. All right, so again, we've got a news show for you today. Uh, actually got some good news, uh, a good bit of good news for you today. That's that's always nice. But we'll start off with a couple not so good articles. One is from Microsoft uh, about a nation state actor called Midnight Blizzard and we'll, and how they hacked some executive emails. That's it's almost kind of a comical press release. We'll read that. Consumer Reports has a disturbing article about how Facebook is monitoring us behind the scenes, even more than just the, the Metapixel. And an article from 404 Media about a global phone spy tool that is monitoring billions of people. Mozilla has an interesting article about something they're calling Platform Tilt that is trying to document the ways in which Apple and Google and Microsoft are keeping companies like Firefox from becoming the default browser. And then thanks to some laws in the EU, uh, Apple is going to be making a lot of changes only for people in the European Union, however, that I want to walk through and try to explain. And Brave Browser says it's going to, quote unquote, simplify its fingerprinting protections. While initially it might sound like a bad idea, it actually makes a lot of sense. I'll tell you why. Facebook is making some good changes to how... Uh, adults and minors can interact on both Facebook and Instagram. That's probably a good idea. The Federal Trade Commission here in the United States is really starting to make some great progress. Uh, I've got a couple of things to update you there. Uh, one with TurboTax and one with actions taken on GoodRx, which is something I mentioned to you uh, a few months ago, and now it actually has come to fruition. Samsung has decided to match Google to offer seven years of Android updates. That's wonderful. And Apple has finally rolled out its stolen device protection. 
which sounds like a really cool no-brainer feature. So I'll tell you about that and how to enable it. And then we'll get to the tip of the week. So lots to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from Microsoft. And <laughs> I hate to laugh off the bat because this is this is not a good thing. But uh, the press release just, just makes me laugh. All right, so let me read this and then I'll try to try to keep it together and tell you why I think this is a little bit silly. Uh, the Microsoft security team detected a nation state attack on our corporate systems on January 12th, 2024, and immediately activated our response process to investigate, disrupt malicious activity, mitigate the attack and deny the threat actor further access. Microsoft has identified the threat actor as Midnight Blizzard, a Russian state sponsored actor, also known as Nobelium. As part of our ongoing commitment to responsible transparency, as recently affirmed in our Security Future Initiative, we are sharing this update. Beginning in late November 2023, the threat actor used a password spray attack to compromise a legacy non-production test tenant account and gain a foothold and then use the account's permissions to access a very small percentage of Microsoft corporate email accounts, including members of our senior leadership team and employees in our cybersecurity, legal, and other functions, and exfiltrated some emails and attached documents. The investigation indicates they were initially targeting email accounts for information related to Midnight Blizzard itself. We are in the process of notifying employees whose email was accessed. The attack was not the result of a vulnerability in Microsoft products or services. To date, there is no evidence that the threat actor had any access to customer environments, production systems, source code, or AI systems. We will notify customers if any action is required. This attack does highlight the continued risk posed to all organizations from well-resourced nation-state threat actors like Midnight Blizzard. So, okay, <laughs> first of all... Yes, this was attributed to a group that Microsoft is referring to as Midnight Blizzard. They also call them Nobelium, but you may have heard them called Cozy Bear or APT29. Everyone names them slightly differently. Uh, Cozy Bear is probably the one you've heard of. And it's also, these are the guys that were supposedly behind the SolarWinds attack. So that should let you know who they are. So yes, this was a sophisticated nation-state attack. Uh, they use quote-unquote password spray uh, which basically means they brute forced it. They tried a bunch of passwords, found some system within Microsoft that was apparently exposed to the internet, which had no two-factor authentication and reused a bad password, which allowed them to get in. So while, yes, this was attributed to a highly resourced, highly funded, very sophisticated attacker, this could have been done by any run-of-the-mill hacker. But they're obviously trying to make it sound like, you know, they were a victim of, you know, overwhelming odds, you know, that this, <laughs> that anybody could have fallen victim to this. And they make a point of actually saying we all need to be careful about these nation state actors. OK, yeah, sure, that is true. But <laughs> but this this was not required to be a, a nation state actor to make this hack from what I can tell. And then they go on to say that it was, hey, it was just a few accounts that were at that were uh, impacted by this. But yeah, the accounts that were impacted were executives and people in the cybersecurity group. Like this is the crown jewels. Like if you're going to hack into anything, this is what you want. So anyway, obviously it's not a good thing. I just, uh, the PR process around creating some of these notifications, I just think is kind of laughable. Okay. Anyway, next up, this is from conservative reports uh, and a report that they have done looking at how Facebook is tracking us. And it's going beyond the, the the meta tracking pixel, which we've talked about quite a bit on this show, and looks at what they're calling server to server tracking. So let me read this article and it'll be more clear. By now, most internet users know their online activity is constantly tracked. No one should be shocked to see ads for items they previously searched for or to be asked if their data can be shared with an unknown number of quote unquote partners. But what is the scale of this surveillance? Judging from data collected by Facebook and newly described in a unique study by Consumer Reports, it's massive, and examining the data may leave you with more questions than answers. Using a panel of 709 volunteers who shared archives of their Facebook data, Consumer Reports found that a total of 186,892 companies sent data about them to the social network. On average, each participant in the study had their data set to Facebook by 2,230 companies. 
That number varied significantly, with some panelists data listing over 7,000 companies providing their data. Participants downloaded an archive of their previous three years of their data from their Facebook settings, then provided it to Consumer Reports. By collecting data this way, the study was able to examine a form of tracking that is normally hidden, so-called server-to-server tracking, in which personal data goes from a company's servers to Meta's servers. Because the data came from a self-selected group of users and because the results were not demographically adjusted, the study does not make any claims about how representative this sample is of the U.S. population as a whole. Participants were also likely more privacy conscious and technically inclined than typical users and more likely to be members of Consumer Reports. Despite its limitations, the study offers a rare look using data directly from Meta on how personal information is collected and aggregated online. Meta spokesperson Emil Vasquez defended the company's practices, and this is a quote from Vasquez, quote, We offer a number of transparency tools to help people understand the information that businesses choose to share with us and manage how it's used, unquote. While Meta does provide transparency tools like the one that enabled this study, Consumer Reports identified problems with them, including that the identity of many data providers is unclear from the names disclosed to users, and that companies that provide services to advertisers are often allowed to ignore opt-out requests. The data examined by Consumer Reports in this study comes from two types of collection, events and custom audiences. Both categories include information about what people do outside of Meta's platforms. Custom audiences allow advertisers to upload customer lists to Meta, often including identifiers like email addresses and mobile advertising IDs. These customers and so-called look-alike audiences made up of similar people can then be targeted with ads on Meta's platforms. The other category of data collection, events, describes interactions that the user had with a brand, which can occur outside of Meta's apps and in the real world. Events can include going to a page on a company's website, leveling up in a game, going to a physical store, or purchasing a product. These signals originate from Meta software code included in many mobile apps, their tracking pixel, which is included on many websites, and from server-to-server tracking, where a company's server passes data to a Meta server. In the report, Consumer Reports calls for a number of policy proposals covering data collection practices, some of which could be part of a national digital privacy law, something that the organization has long advocated for. The recommendations specifically aimed at Meta's technology and the advertisers who use it include, one, requiring companies to adopt data minimization strategies, which call for the collection of the absolute minimum amount of data needed to provide the service being offered. Two, expanding the powers of authorized agents to act on behalf of consumers to act on their rights. Permission Slip is a mobile app by Consumer Reports that allows users to quickly opt out of and delete data from a long list of companies and data brokers on behalf of users. The app takes advantage of state privacy laws, authorized agent provisions. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Three, increasing ad transparency by creating ad archives that allow the public to see all ads that have been served to users on a platform following the lead of the European Union's Digital Services Act. And finally, four, improving the quality and readability of the data that Meta makes available in its existing transparency tools so that consumers can actually act on the information they review. So as always, this is the expert version of the article, uh, but I thought that was the most important stuff. So this is great. It's very interesting. It's something that hasn't been talked about that much. And so I wanted to make sure we wanted to highlight that here. And it's just astonishing how many companies are, are sharing data with Facebook. And it's this incestuous relationship where, you know, hey, if I share more data with you, then you can give me better advertising. So these companies work together to gather as much information as they can. It's like, okay, here's what I can gather. Let me throw this in the mix. And then once everybody, all these thousands of companies throw this data in there, Meta munges all that up and then provides this advertising service that supposedly helps all of them reach their consumers better. Now, I do want to talk about permission slip. This is something that came out a little while ago, and I meant to mention it when it came out, but I had so many, I think it was a week with, a, we had a lot of stuff to talk about. And so I just, it didn't quite make the cut. So I'm glad I get a chance to talk about it now. You should definitely check out Permission Slip. The website is permissionslipcr.com and the CR there for Consumer Reports. So permissionslipcr.com and check out this app. Now, I will say that the ability for them to actually delete data where they can act as an agent on your behalf to get this information and then to opt you out and to delete data where possible is only basically going to work in California. Uh, that's because of the CP, 
CRA and the CCPA laws in California to allow this, specifically allow this whole agent thing to work. Now, other states are starting to implement these things too. Uh, and if you look at the FAQ in the app itself, I've I've installed the app. If you look at the FAQ, it talks about this. And basically it says uh, some companies are going to honor it anyway, just because they want to be nice guys. I, <laughs> I'm not sure if I, if I buy that. Uh, but they do say that other states are tr- starting to follow suit with California and implementing similar laws. And as that happens, then you will have more effect there too. Again, it, there's no reason not to do this. I'm just saying it may not be effective or as effective as you would like it to be if you are not a California resident. I wish this worked everywhere. This this would be nice. This would be a good start. We definitely need some sort of a global way to do this. And the, the companies, the data brokers and, and ad companies like Google and Facebook are fighting this tooth and nail because they do not want a one-stop shop for you to say no. They don't want to have to respond to global privacy control or do not track or one of these global opt-out requests. They do not want that. They want to make it as hard on you as possible. This whole notice and consent model that we have adopted in the United States just doesn't work. And they know it doesn't work. And so they're fighting to uh, deny you this capability. So anyway, try it out. Tell your local representatives that you want this to work in your state too. And maybe we'll finally get to the point where we can all benefit from this. All right, moving on. This next article is from 404 Media. These are guys who are doing some great work. I just interviewed two of the guys from 404. Uh, that interview will be coming up soon. It's just just absolutely fascinating. And the guys, these guys are doing some great work, and this is another example. So this is a much, much longer article, but I'm just going to give you some highlights here. And this is about a company that I had never heard of. And they're using the uh, real-time bidding process to spy on people. And if that term rings a bell, it's because we talked about that at length with Johnny Ryan uh, last year in what he called the biggest data breach of all, which was this process of real-time bidding. And here is a company who is proving that he was right about that. So let me let me read this article. Hundreds of thousands of ordinary apps, including popular ones such as 9gag, Kick, that's K-I-K, and a series of caller ID apps are part of a global surveillance capability that starts with ads inside each app and ends with the app's users being swept up into a powerful mass monitoring tool advertised to national security agencies that can track the physical location, hobbies, and family members of people to build millions of profiles, according to a 404 Media investigation. 404 Media's investigation, based on now-deleted marketing materials and videos, and by the way, this article has links to a lot of that stuff and saved versions of those so you can still see them technical forensics analysis and research from privacy activists provides one of the clearest examinations yet of how advertisements in ordinary mobile apps can ultimately lead to surveillance by spy firms and their government clients through the real-time bidding data supply chain the pipeline involves smaller obscure advertising firms and advertising industry giants like google in response to queries from 404 media google and pubmatic another ad firm have already cut off a company linked to the surveillance firm And this is a quote from uh, Wolfie Crystal, uh, who's the principal at Cracked Labs and Australian Research Institute and co-author of a paper published last year on this said, uh, quote, the pervasive surveillance machine that has been developed for digital advertising now directly enables government mass surveillance. Many businesses from app publishers to advertisers to big tech are acting completely irresponsibly. This must end, end quote. The mass monitoring tool in question is called Patterns, and that's spelled P-A-T-T-E-R-N-Z. In a video uploaded to YouTube in January of 2023 that was removed once 404 Media started to make inquiries, Rafi Tan, the CEO of Pattern, says, quote, We analyze behavior of over 600,000 applications, unquote. One slide he brings up during the video says that, quote, The mobile phone becomes the de facto tracking bracelet, unquote, and suggests that tracking can be achieved through, quote, virtually any app that has ads, unquote. In other marketing materials online, Patterns Patterns pitches itself specifically to national security agencies. At one point in the video, Tan clicks on a particular profile. The next screen shows a wealth of information about that particular device and, by extension, the person. It includes a long list of GPS coordinates related to them, with Tan saying location accuracy can be down to a meter, what address those coordinates corresponded to, the person's frequently visited locations, including their home and work address, the specific apps used by the person, in this case, a couple of caller ID apps, the brand of phone and its operating system, and a list of other users that were next to the target when they were at home and at work. 
It also shows their hobbies and interests, in this case, business, software, technology, and computing. In another example, Tom tracks the movements of someone he says is a flight attendant on a Russian airline, quoting, that's why they travel so much. And the patterns system lists their hobbies as video and computer games and board games or puzzles. Patterns users are able to set up alerts for what they determine to be important events, such as, quote, a person arrived to a location, person leaving a location, or person meets another person, quote, Tan says in the video. The profile Tan talks about in the presentation are just a couple of profiles of many. Patterns monitors at scale and in marketing materials claims to analyze more than 90 terabytes of data every day and have profiles on more than 5 billion user IDs. Every single device has a unique ID that we can basically create a profile around, unquote. While Pattern's product is focused on the passive ingestion of data, the company says it can also help push malware to targets. And another quote from some of the marketing materials says, quote, Offense, send targeted messages, ads, or trojans directly through the ad tech stack for optimal results, unquote. As 404 Media was reporting this article, including speaking to people involved in a company connected to Patterns, someone added a password lock to the marketing materials webpage. Crystal and co-author Dr. Johnny Ryan included a link to an archived version in an early report. And of course, that's a link in the article that you can click on. While Tan's comments in the video put the total number of Patterns connected apps at around 600,000, the demonstration version of Patterns shown in the video claims to have data from about 177,000 Android apps and 62,000 iOS apps. Crucially, this monitoring via real-time bidding is not the same as other forms of app tracking, which require the app developer themselves to install code from a location tracking company. In those cases, location brokers sometimes pay the app developers based on how many users' data they provide. But here, Patterns doesn't need to enter any sort of direct relationship with the app developers. Instead, it is all handled by the ad networks and platforms that are plugged into the app. So again, if you're interested, this is a much longer article with a lot more detail it's, it's really pretty scary stuff. But this whole real-time bidding thing we talked about last year, and if you forget, real-time bidding is this notion of, okay, I'm a website, I need to make money off of advertising because I got to pay the bills. We all understand that. And to do so, I'm going to set up these areas of my website kind of as billboards that can be rented out to advertisers. And you know what? I, I don't have time for that. I don't have the expertise for that. So I'm just going to handle this through some ad company, Google, Facebook, some others, and say, look, here's, here's where I want you to put ads on my, on my webpage, fill them as needed. Maybe don't do porn. You know, they have a little bit of feedback on what goes there, but you know, generally speaking, put ads on my, on my site and then send me a check every month. And so these ad networks, what they do is they create this real-time bidding system where they, they learn as much about you as possible as you're visiting these websites. And as you're on a given website and they think they know who you are and what you might want to see and what, what you might be tricked into buying, they do this real-time bidding process where they say, all right, everybody, here's who I've got. What are you going to pay me to show an ad to this person right now? And in microseconds, all that bidding is done. And then uh, the winning bidder gets to put their ad in front of your face right then. But the process of doing that, the process of communicating what they know about this person in, in order to fill that ad space right now is what this company is using to track people and learn more about people and then sell that data. So this is a fantastic bit of investigative journalism. We definitely need to support groups like 404. Uh, I was very happy to talk to these guys, and you'll learn more about that when I played that interview. But if, if you haven't checked out their website, do so. It's 404media.co. And, you know, maybe subscribe to their newsletter. I personally, I donate to these guys. But if not these guys, you know, find your favorite investigative journalism outlet and, uh, and, and help support them in any way you can, because uh, journalism is really... Uh, floundering in this country, and uh, we really need what they're doing. All right, next up, this is from Mozilla, the makers of Firefox, uh, and the Privacy Not Included report, which I did a great interview uh, on their report on privacy in cars, which will be coming up soon. But this is them kind of saying, you know, hey, guys, look, <laughs> we're struggling here as, as a, as a third-party browser, and there are reasons why we're struggling, because the incumbents make it really hard to replace them as your browser of choice. So they've actually created a whole website associated with this, which tracks these, these basically anti-competitive issues and roadblocks and speed bumps that are, that are in the way uh, of browsers like Brave and Firefox and Opera and some of these non-standard browsers to make any inroads and in getting new customers. So let me, let me read from this article and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the, the problems that they've outlined. 
Browsers are the principal gateway connecting people to the open internet, acting as their agent and shaping their experience. The central role of browsers has long motivated us to build and improve Firefox in order to offer people an independent choice. However, this centrality also creates a strong incentive for dominant players to control the browser that people use. The right way to win users is to build a better product, but shortcuts can be irresistible, and there's a long history of companies leveraging their control of devices and operating systems to tilt the playing field in favor of their own browser. This tilt manifests in a variety of ways. For example, making it harder for a user to download and use a different browser, ignoring or resetting a user's default browser preference, restricting capabilities to the first-party browser, or requiring the use of the first-party browser engine for third-party browsers. For years, Mozilla has engaged in dialogue with platform vendors in an effort to address these issues. With renewed public attention and an evolving regulatory environment, we think it's time to publish these concerns using the same transparent process and tools we use to develop positions on emerging technical standards. So today we are publishing a new issue tracker where we intend to document the ways in which platforms put Firefox at a disadvantage and engage with the vendors of those platforms to resolve them. This tracker captures the issues we experienced developing Firefox, but we believe in an even playing field for everyone, not just us. We encourage other browser vendors to publish their concerns in a similar fashion and welcome the engagement and contributions of other non-browser groups interested in these issues. We're particularly appreciative of the efforts of Open Web Advocacy, and that's uh, those are all caps, that's a, a group, in articulating the case for a level playing field and for documenting self-preferencing. People deserve choice, and choice requires the existence of viable alternatives. Alternatives and competition are good for everyone, but they can only flourish if the playing field is fair. It's not today, but it's also not hard to fix if the platform vendors wish to do so. We call on Apple, Google, and Microsoft to engage with us in this new forum to speedily resolve these concerns. So this article links to their GitHub page where they're tracking these issues basically like they track bugs in a software program. And the article mentioned a few of them that, uh, that I'll just circle back to here real quick. And the first one being making it harder for a user to download and use a different browser. iOS does this, for example, by currently requiring all web browsers on iOS to use the Apple WebKit engine. And that does have a limiting effect, right? I mean, you can't do everything you want to do. You could brand your browser as Firefox, but it, under the covers, it's not really Firefox. The, the guts of that browser are still the one that Apple provides. So that, you know, that makes it harder to differentiate yourself. And for a long time, it wasn't even possible to set a different browser as your default browser. And as I talked about recently on the on show, a lot of apps actually have built-in web browsers, uh, which don't even let you use your default browser. So lots of things going on there, some of which are the, you know, the fault of the operating system and some not. There have been cases where operating systems have either ignored your default browser setting, kind of like I just referred to sort of, uh, but also resetting the default browser preference. Uh, maybe on a major software update, uh, they will reset your choice to go back to the one that they want, which is theirs. And I've seen Microsoft do this, and I think Apple's done this as well. But there are other things too that they do that are just really kind of shady. And honestly, I can't believe they haven't triggered antitrust attention so far. Like, for example, Microsoft on Windows 11, for sure, makes it really hard to use a browser besides Microsoft's Edge browser. Like when you're searching for something in the Microsoft search bar, uh, or you've got widgets on the desktop that have news and stock quotes and things like that, anytime you click on any link on any of those, it automatically launches Edge, no matter what your default browser is. A lot of times the experience is better on the on the preferred browser uh, over a different browser. Like, you know, if you look at Chrome versus Firefox on Android, the Chrome results, uh, the one they showed in the article is if you search on a flight number and you want to see what the flight status is, the, the Google Chrome version of that uh, allows for a much nicer look than if you use the same Google search engine, but within the Firefox browser, it doesn't give you the same pretty output that it would if you were doing it from the Chrome browser. The support for browser extensions is different on Chrome versus other browsers. And Chrome is the dominant browser right now on the desktop. Like over 60% of the world uses Chrome as their default web browser. And their changes with Manifest V3 and things like that really hobble tracking blockers and ad blockers like uBlock Origin. Now, in that case, you've got an advantage of using Firefox because Firefox is not going to have those limitations. But there's just so many things conspiring to, to keep you from moving to Firefox from, from Chrome. So anyway, if this is something that interests you, check out this article and then uh, check out the list of issues that, that they're tracking. And hopefully what we'll see over time is these issues will go away and these quote unquote bugs will get fixed. Okay, next up, there's been a lot of articles on this. I'm going to read the one from Mac Rumors because it has a really kind of a nice summary. 
But this is huge. This is a really big change. And this honestly exposes a lot of the things that I still do not like about Apple. I've heard a lot of debates on this in some of the podcasts I listen to. And, and the, the real point here is that I like Apple. I think, generally speaking, overall, they do a better job with privacy than, uh, than Google and Microsoft. But that doesn't mean they're perfect. And that doesn't mean I can't call them out when they're doing things that I think are crappy. And these are some of the things that I think they need to fix. And the EU is forcing them to fix them. And Apple has decided basically that they're only going to fix them in the EU, which I think is crappy. But I, I'll circle back to that at the end here. Let me just read this article from Mac Rumors, which talks about what's going on and, and enumerates the things that are going to be changing. And I just picked the highlights here. Apple on Thursday seeded the first betas of upcoming iOS 17.4 and iPadOS 17.4 software updates to developers, and the betas revealed a panoply of changes that will impact users in the European Union in order, in order to comply with the Digital Markets Act, or the DMA. Apple implemented several major changes in the way the App Store and apps operate in the EU in order to comply with the DMA. These changes are included in iOS 17.4, but are generally limited to countries that are in the European Union. Apple is working towards a March 6th deadline to make the changes live for users who update to iOS 17.4. Below, we've summarized what will change for affected users and the reasons that Apple has offered for said changes, along with some related news. And I actually shortened this list a little bit, uh, but it's still pretty long. One, alternative app stores. App developers in the EU can opt to offer alternative app stores or install their apps through alternative app stores, and Apple has made a new fee structure as part of the change. Any developer can create an app marketplace so long as they meet Apple's criteria for customer experience, fraud prevention, customer support, and more. And I think I'm just going to have to stop and go through each one of these as they go, because otherwise I'm just going to have to come right back to them. So Apple doesn't currently allow you to buy apps from anywhere other than through their approved Apple App Store. And they say this is for security reasons and to keep out scams and bad apps and things like that. And that is true. That is part of what the Apple App Store provides. However, unlike Google, who will, who will allow you to do this, even though you have to jump through several hoops to do so, Apple still needs to allow you to install apps from somewhere else. And this App Store's revenue is a big chunk of Apple's profits. They charge 30% uh, on all apps, purchases, and in-app purchases, and they want to be able to control that. And so from Apple's perspective, they're protecting their profit. Now, the dumb thing is, is supposedly, and I, I can't understand how they're going to enforce this, but Apple is putting in these limitations to say, okay, well, sure, you can create your own App Store, but if you do, you're still going to get, have to give us 27%. Uh, and you've got to meet all these requirements that are going to be hard for you to meet. I, that's going to be a non-starter. This is this is going to end up in court. But a lot of people are saying that that's exactly what Apple wants. They want to give them begrudgingly, supposedly what they're asking for, this, this malicious compliance, basically, to the law uh, that they're not going to like. But Apple says, well, hey, if you want it, this is the way it's got to be. This is This is what you're asking for and make it as unpalatable as possible. Get it in the courts and tie this up for years. So it's going to be really ugly. So that's probably why they're only doing this in the EU. But anyway, the, the, the next thing on the list is alternative payment options. Apple is allowing apps to use alternative payment options, and there is no longer a requirement to use in-app purchases. This was a huge deal. Developers can integrate these into their app, or developers can link out to their websites where users can make a purchase. Apple fought this tooth and nail. This was the dumb thing where if you're in the Kindle app, on an iOS device and you want to buy a book from Amazon, you can't do it. Well, okay, actually you can do it, but Amazon won't let you do it. And, and Amazon won't let you do it because Apple wants to charge 30% of every purchase they make through that app because that's their agreement to be in the app store. But Amazon basically says, look, the margin on these books is less than 30%. So we would actually be paying you to let someone buy a book. So therefore Amazon's not going to do it. And this is also related to what Epic wanted to do, uh, the maker of Fortnite. They wanted to have their own app store as well because they didn't want Apple pocketing that 30%. But it's even down to the point where Apple restricts apps from being able to link out to buy the thing on a website instead of buying it through the app. Because if you buy it through the app, you got to pay Apple. But like, for example, in the Kindle, if you're, if you're in the Kindle app on the iOS, you know, Amazon could provide you a link where you're not technically buying it through the app. You're launching the web browser and then buying it from the web browser. And then it's going to show up in your Kindle app. Apple won't let that do it either. Well, now with this new law in the EU, they're going to have to allow that. So Apple is begrudgingly going to allow that. 
NFC third-party access. NFC payments, that's near-field communications. That's the kind of tap to pay with your phone. NFC payments will be available directly in apps without the need for Apple Pay or the Wallet app, allowing third-party payment systems and banks to offer their own tap-to-pay solutions on Apple devices in the European economic area. So again, another profit center for Apple. They didn't want to let other people do it. I'm sure that they were claiming this is going to be a security problem and that our customers are going to be scammed and they're going to install apps that are going to you know, take money from them, which all may be true, but it also happens to very much benefit Apple's bottom line. Here are Apple's reasons for limiting the changes to the EU. In a support document, Apple has explained why alternative app stores, alternative payment options, and other updates are being limited to the EU, highlighting risks like fraud, scams, and other privacy threats. As a direct or indirect consequence of the announced changes coming in iOS 17.4, there have also been some other significant developments overnight. Apple's new EU terms include a core technology fee that some developers have warned could completely bankrupt freemium apps that go viral by charging them astronomical fees. Apple does not charge for the first 1 million quote-unquote first annual installs per iOS account each year, but after that, developers will begin racking up charges. Apple's core technology fee could also be prohibitively expensive for apps like Spotify that have millions of users. Apple has also announced that it will allow streaming game apps on the App Store worldwide. This will mean services like Xbox Cloud Gaming and NVIDIA GeForce Now will be available as standalone iPhone and iPad apps, whereas previously they were only accessible via the web. So uh, this is a really, really tricky, thorny, nuanced topic. Uh, There's a lot to this and it's really hard to cover. I could probably do a whole show on this and maybe someday I will. Look, I, there is something to be said for, you know, a, a gilded cage, uh, a walled garden, uh, which is what Apple has erected here. And they charge a lot of fees, but Google, my Xbox, Sony, PlayStation, they all charge 30% as well. They didn't start this. And there is something to be said for, look, we we're providing you with the framework to, to advertise and make your apps available. And we do automatic you know, security screening on these things. There's a lot of plumbing and, and logistics and marketing and things that the app store does provide that is worth something. Now, is it worth 30% of everything you do? I don't know. Now it's actually not 30%. And unless you make, I think it's over a million dollars a year, it's 15%, not 30%. So again, there are a lot of weird angles to this. It's not straightforward either way, but I certainly think that Apple absolutely needs to give you the option to install apps that are not in the app store. Uh, I would certainly recommend you don't do that, but you do need the freedom to do so. You you need to have that right. Uh, And so I think it's a good thing that Apple's finally being forced to do this, even though it is kicking and screaming. And by the way they're doing this, it definitely looks like, you know, what we like to call malicious compliance. It's like, okay, if you're going to force me to do this, I'm going to do it to the letter of the law and I'm going to make it as painful as possible. And I'm going to try to trigger consequences that you didn't see coming so that it makes it unpalatable to you. And then it's going to go to the courts and it's going to take years to settle this out. Apple's trying to kick the can down the road by doing that. It's, it's just ugly. So... <laughs> So we'll keep an eye on that. And that's, that's, that's my two cents on what's really going on there. All right, next up, this is from Brave. Uh, Brave makes its own browser. It's actually a, a quite nice browser. It's actually based on the Chromium engine, which is the, uh, the, the web engine behind the, the Chrome browser, but also behind Microsoft Edge and a lot of other browsers. And they've done a really good job in my book and on uh, my blog. And when I talk about choosing a privacy respecting browser, Brave is right up there with Firefox. It's, it's really good. I just happen to prefer Firefox personally, uh, but I could, you know, if you just want an easy button privacy browser, Brave is a, is a great way to go. And they've got some really great privacy technologies built into their browser, including anti-fingerprinting. But they just put out a press release or a blog article or whatever saying that they are going to sunset the quote unquote strict fingerprinting mode. And you might think, oh, that's, that's too bad. That's, you know, that's an option I definitely want. Well, let me read this article and I think you might understand why they're doing it. With desktop and Android version 1.64 in a couple of months, Brave will sunset strict fingerprinting protection mode. This does not affect Brave's industry-leading fingerprinting protection capabilities for users. Instead, it will allow us to focus on improving privacy protections in standard mode and avoid web compatibility issues. 
Brave currently offers two levels of fingerprinting protections, which makes it harder for tracking companies to identify you as you browse the web, standard and strict mode. Over time, however, we observed significant disadvantages of strict mode. First, in order to block fingerprintable APIs, strict mode frequently causes certain websites to function incorrectly or not at all. This website breakage means that strict mode has limited utility for most web users. Second, fewer than half a percent of Brave users use strict fingerprinting protection mode based on our privacy-preserving telemetry data. Third, this tiny cohort of users could be more vulnerable to being fingerprinted because they stand out as a result of using strict mode. Although we have not seen issues around this, it is a valid concern given that users who select strict fingerprinting protection might have done so because of an elevated concern about tracking. And finally, fourth, maintaining strict mode and debugging why some websites are broken on Brave takes our engineers' time away from focusing on default privacy protections that can benefit all of our users. These observations have led us to the conclusion that sunsetting strict mode in Brave will actually be beneficial to our users' privacy. Brave's standard fingerprinting protection is already very extensive and the strongest of any major web browser. Brave's innovative farbling, and I'm gonna come, I'll come back to that in a second. Brave's innovative farbling of a number of major fingerprintable web APIs makes it difficult for fingerprinters to get a reliably unique ID on your browser. Going forward, we will, be, we will continue to strengthen and expand Brave's standard fingerprinting protections so that all of our users have ever-improving protection against fingerprinters while maintaining the highest possible level of compatibility with websites. So I guess a quick definition of fingerprinting is in order here. Advertisers on the web want to track you around the web and know what websites you visit, what links you click on and build up this profile on you. Browsers have started to build in protections against tracking, in particular, uh, you know, ad tracking and met things like the Metapixel that we've already talked about today. And because of that, actually, th these websites and advertisers have come up with some really clever and tricky means by which to identify you. And one of these things that's very hard to prevent is called fingerprinting. And when you browse to a website, your browser gives up a lot of information about you. And if you put the right kind of code in your website, you can actually cause it to give you even more details about your web browser. For example, what size your monitor screen is, how big your current browser window is, what version of, of the web browser you're running, what type of browser you're running, what operating system you're on, what version of operating system you're on the color depth of your monitor, all these kind of things that would help the website you're visiting to better give you a, a good web experience. Because if you're on a mobile phone, that's different than being on a monitor versus being on a super wide monitor, right? I mean, the website would might want to know these things so it could give you the best possible view of their website. But in the process of querying some of these things, like getting the exact pixel dimensions of your monitor and the the, the browser window that you currently have open, for example, those kind of things, if you add up enough of those questions together, the answers make you look unique, taken in total. And so one of the things that Brave does <laughs> is called, well, they call it anyway, farbling. And it's a kind of another name for fuzzing, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, but you might not be familiar with either, either of them. They might both sound pretty funny, and they are. Basically, what they do is they kind of randomize the responses. So let's say your browser window right now is 1000 pixels by 600 pixels. And that's, you know, that's you. But instead of returning 1000 by 600 every time that this website asks for this, and so that when you go on multiple websites, and it says, Hey, that's the that that person also had 1000 by 600. Oh, and their monitor was also, you know, a 4k monitor. And you know, I add these things together, it's like, you know what, that's probably the same person. Because when you open the web browser, you kind of customize it yourself. You open it to a certain size, right? So what they're doing is, for example, might be instead of returning 1000 by 600, maybe what they actually return is 1001 by 599 or 1004 by 597. And every time they ask, they give a slightly different number. They're kind of putting some random noise in there to make you not quite the same. Now, in this whole cat and mouse game that is tracking, you know, I, as the advertiser might say, you know what, I can see they're trying to fuzz that. So, you know, instead of looking at the exact number, I'm going to start putting, putting these in bins of a certain size. Like, you know, if it's anything within 10 pixels of a thousand uh, or 10 pixels of 600, I'm going to put that in the same bin. So now that fuzzing doesn't work. So you see this, they go back and forth. There's, there's all these 
moves and counter moves to try to track you. And so Brave is doing its best to try to prevent that from happening. And in strict mode on their browser, they went further than normal. And in fact, they went so far that some websites didn't even work. Like they asked you questions about your browser and your browser gave them such a nonsensical answer. Like, look, I, I don't even know what to do with that. I can't, I can't give you anything. If that's, if you're telling me your screen size is two pixels by three pixels, I, I'm not even going to try to give you a web page. So anyway, what Brave is kind of saying here is it's diminishing returns. First of all, very few people are actually using this feature and they're spending a lot of time and resources uh, for that very small percentage of people. Uh, it breaks a lot of web pages, so people end up having to turn it off anyway. And the other weird gotcha for a lot of these privacy technologies is just by virtue of using some of these technologies and putting yourself in a half of percent of, of web users, you are making yourself stand out. You're looking more unique, and that is exactly what you don't want. So. I understand what they're doing here, and I, th and I think it's perfectly fine that they're doing this. And I think it makes much more sense to make their default anti-fingerprinting technology work for as many people as possible and to keep improving that and, and save the time and effort on that very, very thin slice of people who want the, the super strict mode. Honestly, those people, if you really want to do that, there are other ways to do it, like with browser plugins that you could use, uh, and you could still get a lot of those same protections. Okay, moving on. This is from 9to5Mac, and it's a welcome change, I think, uh, to Facebook's policy on protecting kids uh, through social media apps. Meta is beefing up protections against grooming of teens on Instagram and Facebook by further limiting who is able to send them direct messages. The latest measure builds on a previous Instagram protection based on who teenagers follow in the app. There aren't likely to be too many good reasons for an adult to send an unsolicited DM or a direct message to an under 16 that they don't know. So Meta is now making it impossible for them to do so. Previously, an adult could message a teen on Instagram if the teenager followed them, but the latest protection goes beyond this. Until now, Instagram restricts adults over the age of 18 from messaging teens who don't follow them. The new limits apply to all users under 16 and in some geographies under 18 by default. On Messenger, users will only get messages from Facebook friends or people they have in their contacts. Meta is also making its parental controls more robust by allowing guardians to allow or deny changes in default privacy settings made by teens. Previously, when teens changed these settings, guardians got a notification, but they couldn't take any action on them. The company gives an example that if a teen user tries to make their account public from private, changes the sensitive content control from less to standard, or attempts to change controls around who can DM them, guardians can block them. Additionally, the social media giant plans to introduce something similar to Apple's iMessage safety feature designed to detect and blur nudes. Apple introduced this in 2021, and we talked about it when that came out. So I think this is generally a good idea. This is more about direct messaging, basically not allowing unsolicited incoming direct messages from adults to go to, to minors and giving parents you know, some more control over these privacy settings for their teens. I think that on the whole, this is a good thing. All right, next up, a couple statements from the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. First, about TurboTax. The commission's opinion finding that Intuit, who's the maker of TurboTax, has engaged in a broad, enduring, and willful deceptive advertising campaign is a major win for consumers and honest marketers. In its opinion, the commission conducted its own review of the facts and law to decide that Intuit's claims that TurboTax was a quote-unquote free service were wholly unsupported and that the vast majority of tax filers were not eligible for the free version of the service. Instead, they were upgraded to costly, deluxe, and premium products. As the commission has long understood, free is a powerful lure, one that Intuit deployed in scores of ads. Its attempts to qualify its free claim were ineffective and often inconspicuous. The commission found that Intuit's quote-unquote simple returns only disclosure was anything but clear and unambiguous and does not change the strong and powerful net impression of the free ads. The commission concluded that Intuit's deceptive advertising campaign has been widespread and that it lasted for years and continues to the present day. It found that Intuit kept running the ads knowing that they led consumers to believe that they could file their returns for free. The commission described these violations as egregious. The commission has issued an order setting forth a clear standard that Intuit must follow. They must stop their deceptive ads and tell the truth about how many people are actually eligible for their supposed free products. 
The order also sends a message across the industry. Free means free. Not free for a few, not free for some. Businesses can expect an FTC enforcement action if they harness the power of free in the dishonest way that Intuit did. This is a very welcome development. Uh, We talked about this years ago when ProPublica did a really big article on this. In fact, I think I did an interview with them on this. And there's there's a big history to this. Many years ago, the government was going to come out with a free online filing version through the IRS, through the, the U.S. tax service, and Intuit and H&R Block and others fought this tooth and nail and said, hey, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't do that. You'll, 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 you'll kill our business. They didn't put it that way. But they said, look, there's no reason for you to get in the software writing business. That is what we do. Let us do that. We will offer a, a free version so you don't have to. And then for years, it went back and forth on who was allowed to do free. There was all these advertisements uh, that bring you in because it was free. And then as soon as you get to the very end, they say, oh, gee, sorry, you have to do this one thing. And because you have to do this one thing, you can't use the free version. You've got to bump up to, you know, a for pay version. And they did this for years and they they went back and forth with the government on this. And finally, <laughs> finally, the FTC just said, you know, we've had enough. This is this is BS. You can't do this anymore. And by the way, the U.S. government is now looking again at doing its own free version of online tax filing, which should, by the way, incentivize the U.S. government to simplify its tax code to make this more you know, usable by more people. And hopefully this will, this, will, this will be good for all of us. So this is the federal government finally working for you. And in a follow-up for something we talked about uh, last fall that the FTC was threatening to do about sharing sensitive health data, the FTC is actually now bringing the hammer down on that as well. So let me read another statement from the FTC. The Federal Trade Commission has taken enforcement action for the first time under its health breach notification rule against the telehealth and prescription drug discount provider GoodRx Holdings Incorporated for failing to notify customers and others of its unauthorized disclosures of consumers' personal health information to Facebook, Google, and other companies. In a first-of-its-kind proposed order filed by the Department of Justice on behalf of the FTC, GoodRx will be prohibited from sharing user health data with applicable third parties for advertising purposes and has agreed to pay a $1.5 million civil penalty for violating the rule. The proposed order must be approved by a federal court to go into effect. California-based GoodRx operates a digital health platform that offers prescription drug discounts, telehealth visits, and other health services. The company collects personal and health information about its users, including information from users themselves and from pharmacy benefit managers confirming when a consumer purchases a medication using a GoodRx coupon. Since January of 2017, more than 55 million consumers have visited or used GoodRx's website or mobile apps. According to the FTC's complaint, GoodRx violated the FTC Act by sharing sensitive personal health information for years with advertising companies and platforms, contrary to its privacy promises, and failed to report these unauthorized disclosures as required by the health breach notification rule. Specifically, the FTC said GoodRx, one, shared personal health information with Facebook, Google, Critio, and others, two, used personal health information to target its users with ads, three, failed to limit third-party use of personal health information, four, misrepresented its HIPAA compliance, and five, failed to implement policies to protect personal health information. In addition to the $1.5 million penalty for violating the rule, the proposed federal court order also prohibits GoodRx from engaging in deceptive practices outlined in the complaint and requires the company to comply with the health breach notification rule. To remedy the FTC's numerous allegations, other provisions of the proposed order against GoodRx also, one, prohibit the sharing of health data for ads. GoodRx will be permanently prohibited from disclosing user health information with applicable third parties for advertising purposes. Two, require user consent for any other sharing. The company must obtain users' affirmative express consent before disclosing user health information with applicable third parties for other purposes. The order requires the company to clearly and conspicuously detail the categories of health information that it will disclose to third parties and prohibits the company from using manipulative designs known as dark patterns to obtain users' consent to share the information. Three, require the company to seek deletion of data. The company must direct third parties to delete the consumer health data that was shared with them and inform consumers about the breaches and the FTC's enforcement action against the company. 
Four, limit retention of data. GoodRx will be required to limit how long it can retain personal and health information according to a data retention schedule. It also must publicly post a retention schedule and detail the information it collects and why such data collection is necessary. And finally, five, implement mandatory privacy program. It must put in place a comprehensive privacy program that includes strong safeguards to protect consumer data. So... <laughs> This is this is great that they're doing this with GoodRx, but what this really is is a shot across the bow to everybody else who is also doing this. This is a good thing, and we actually discussed this quite a bit uh, in my interview with Kate Black, which will be coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. All right, one more quick article, and then I've got a really interesting one about uh, a new feature from Apple. Uh, and this is from 9to5Google. Long-term updates have been a struggle on Android phones for a while. But Google broke new ground last year with the Pixel 8 series, getting an industry-leading seven years of major updates. That beats even the iPhone. Now Samsung is matching that with seven years of updates on the Galaxy S24 series. The Galaxy S24, S24 Plus, and S24 Ultra will all be eligible for seven years of updates. That includes security patches, which Samsung generally distributes monthly at first before slowing down over time, as well as major Android versions and feature updates. Specifically, Samsung says seven generations of OS upgrades. So with all three devices launching with Android 14, they should be updated through Android 21, or whatever that ends up being called, under this new policy. Prior to this, Samsung offered its flagship devices four years of major Android updates and five years of security patches. For quite a while, that has been the best policy in Android until Google beat it this past fall. It's a major shakeup, as both now Google and Samsung are beating Apple when it comes to update timelines. Apple doesn't have a specific promise in place, but tends to support iPhones for around six years, give or take, depending on the model. So this is fantastic. This is really, really good. And by the way, Android has gotten a lot better at getting security patches out. It's a very fractured market, unlike Apple, which owns everything soup to nuts, both the hardware and the software and basically everything. Uh, the Android ecosystem is very different. Uh, Google owns the, the base operating system. It makes security patches. Then it has to make those available to the phone manufacturers, like Samsung in this case. And then it also has to go this filter of all the uh, phone providers, cell phone providers, Verizon, Orange, AT&T, you know, pick your service provider. And because of all those layers, uh, a lot of times it took a long time for these security patches to get out, and sometimes they didn't get out at all. Google has worked to short circuit some of that and make sure the security patches can go straight to the phones, regardless of manufacturer, regardless of provider. It has made some progress there, so that's all good. But in this case, uh, what we're talking about here is they have promised, basically, to make sure that uh, software updates will, will be available for these flagship devices for seven years. That's that's pretty awesome. And Apple, honestly, has been doing kind of the same thing. And like this article says, they're not really explicit about it. Maybe this will force them to be more explicit about it. But they actually were doing a pretty good job for many years and were beating Android. So anyway, this is the kind of comp this is the kind of competition we like to see. So uh, this this is all all for the better. All right, one more article here, and it's really kind of a pseudo tip of the week. Uh, it's a great new feature that Apple has just included in the latest version of their uh, iOS updates. So uh, this is from Apple Insider, and let me tell you about what this is and then tell you how to enable this wonderful feature. Stolen device protection is a feature Apple hopes will prevent the total loss of an Apple ID if an iPhone and passcode are stolen. Previously, a thief could learn a person's passcode through social engineering or spying, steal the person's iPhone, and quickly lock the person out of their Apple ID. In other words, their entire Apple account. After reports of such problems got out, Apple worked on a feature to help mitigate the risk of total loss after an iPhone was stolen. As of iOS 17.3, which is out now, and if uh, you have an Apple device, you should absolutely upgrade immediately because there are some important security fixes in it. And by the way, actually, you should update all your Apple devices right now. There's been lots of good security fixes in, but you also get this really cool feature. So anyway, as of iOS 17.3, Apple has provided users with a way to mitigate the threat of total loss of an Apple ID. A thief can no longer access critical information or change passwords without biometric authentication by enabling a new feature called stolen device protection. So what does this feature do? Stolen device protection removes passcode fallback when accessing critical portions of Apple ID or device settings. It also implements a security delay when a user attempts to alter especially sensitive information like an Apple ID password. Normally, certain actions will prompt the user for Face ID or Touch ID. If those biometrics fail to authenticate, the user is then prompted for a passcode. 
when stolen device protection is enabled, the following requires biometric authentication with no passcode fallback. And I'm just going to rattle off uh, several here. Uh, using passwords or passkeys saved in Apple Passwords, applying for a new Apple Card, viewing the Apple Card virtual card, turning off lost mode, erasing all content and settings, take certain Apple Cash and savings actions in wallet, using payment methods saved in Safari, and using your iPhone to set up a new device. That means a thief with your iPhone and passcode could not access these settings. Any one of these settings could lead to significant financial loss or compromise of the user's Apple ID. Features not mentioned in the above list will still have a passcode fallback option, like authenticating Apple Pay. However, FDIC insurance will cover fraudulent charges if a thief uses Apple Pay. Apple adds another layer of protection for especially sensitive settings and controls, a one-hour delay. If the user is outside of a trusted location, and I'll come back to that in a second, and attempts to alter the following settings, a biometric scan followed by a one-hour delay and another biometric scan occurs. And here's a short list of these features. If you try to change your Apple ID password, updating Apple ID account security settings like removing a trusted device or a trusted phone number, a recovery key or a recovery contact, changing your iPhone passcode, adding or removing face ID or touch ID, turning off find my, turning off stolen device protection. Trusted locations are learned by the iPhone and are not user addressable. Significant locations like home and work are used as exemptions for stolen device protection. The one-hour delay ensures that even if a thief can trick the user into the initial biometric scan, it would be incredibly unlikely that the user would still be available for a second scan an hour later. Alternatively, if a thief learned the user's home address and attempted to drive there to make changes without a delay, the user would have enough time to activate loss mode. Stolen device protection won't prevent your iPhone from being stolen, but it might keep your Apple ID, passwords, and finances safe from thieves. Apple Insider highly recommends activating the feature. So, how do you do that? Open the Settings app and tap on Face ID and Passcode. The toggle for stolen device protection is about midway down the page. Toggle the feature on and read through Apple's prompts about the feature. From our use of the feature, users shouldn't notice any difference in how their iPhone operates day to day. This is especially true when in significant locations like work or home where the feature isn't active. So this is in direct response to the stories that we were reading last year where uh, you take your phone out to a bar or a public place and there were actually thieves who were specifically targeting people who were doing this and they would get you to unlock your phone and they would pay attention to your unlock code your pin code. So as soon as you unlock your phone and they get your pin code, they steal your phone. Sometimes just blatantly, like just take it out of your hand. Sometimes, you know, they might slip into your purse and try to take it out so you don't know about it. But then they would run away with your phone. And now that they have your passcode, they could use that to get into the phone and then basically lock you out of not only your phone, but your, your Apple ID account. They can turn off Find My so that you can't track your phone being stolen. Do some really, really bad stuff. It was, it was a very tricky, very clever attack against iPhone's security. So now with iOS 17, we have this new feature called stolen device protection that if you turn it on, and I don't see any reason why you shouldn't, this will prevent those kind of attacks from happening or at least give you, and, and in some cases, an hour to respond if something like, something like this were to happen. It enforces biometrics, meaning you have to actually use touch ID or face ID, which is a lot harder for a bad guy to make you do. And in the cases where the really important stuff, like uh, it actually forces you to do it twice unless you happen to be at one of these known locations. And so when you're at home or at work, this protection won't come into play, which is probably Apple's way of making sure that it doesn't get super annoying. So if you want to you know, change your Apple ID pin code or you know, add a credit card or things like that, you, you're going to probably want to do it while you're at home or at work. And then you won't have this built-in one-hour delay. But I think it's a great feature. Now, I have not activated this myself yet because I usually like to wait at least a week you know, to make sure there's no weird problems with this and let other people try it first. I mean, I haven't had it all my life until now, so I can wait another week. But I definitely plan to turn this on, and I see no reason at this point why anybody shouldn't turn it on. So anyway, that's kind of a freebie extra tip of the week. The real tip of the week for this week is data privacy week. And that was technically last week was international data privacy week. Uh, but what I do every year is I have what I call a data privacy checklist. And I basically just make sure I get that updated every January for data privacy week. 
uh, and update my general recommendations for, for privacy. And I did that again this week. I'm not going to go through them all here. I will just kind of give you some highlights of what you can find there. You can easily get to my data privacy checklist by going to fdsd.me slash DPC as in data privacy checklist. Or if you just go to the website and search for data privacy checklist, you'll find it there too. But in my data privacy checklist, this is kind of my you know, one-stop shop uh, for privacy stuff. I have several recommendations for you to kind of get educated and get inspired. You know, for some reason, you're still kind of not sold on why privacy is so important, or maybe you're trying to convince somebody else of why privacy is important. You're not really sure how to do that. Uh, there's several links there to everything from YouTube videos to, to blog articles, to books, to documentaries, lots of different ways uh, that you can kind of get educated on why privacy is so important. And then I tick off some of my top privacy recommendations, including choosing a privacy respecting browser and how to configure that browser for maximum privacy, which luckily isn't that hard anymore. A lot of the Firefox and Brave kind of have everything built in. I talk about like, you know, using a VPN and encrypted messaging services like Signal, uh, encrypted email services like Proton. I do talk about some security things as well, because security tools like password managers and two-factor authentication enable privacy. If, you know, if, if somebody can hack into your email account, then it's not terribly private. I have links to my article series about how to reduce your Google footprint and also just kind of reducing your kind of fingerprint ability and your tracking surface in general. I talk about how to adjust some of your basic privacy settings. I also talk about just saying no about a lot of times <laughs> increasing your privacy is re is reducing your attack services, deleting apps you don't need anymore, turning off features you don't need. I've got links to several articles uh, that tell you how to change the, the settings on uh, common social media accounts to make them more private. And then finally, I've got a list of uh, a bunch of other privacy guides. So it's really kind of a catch-all. It's my go-to reference for all things privacy. So definitely check out fdsd.me slash dpc. So there you go. There is your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, we're running long already, so I'm going to keep this short. I've got lots of great interviews in the can ready to go. Next week, I think we'll be doing the one from Patrick Wardle. Finally, uh, I talked to him last fall. It's taken a long time to bring this one uh, to, to you guys, but we'll be talking about computer security. It's a great, great interview. But I've got several more coming your way, including, like I talked about today, some ones on medical privacy. I talked to somebody from Mozilla about their wonderful Privacy Not Included uh, series on car privacy. I'm actually working to maybe get a whole episode dedicated to that Operation Triangulation iPhone hack. That could be interesting. No promises. I'm working on that. We'll see if I can pull that together. And if I finally have a quiet week sometime soon, which who knows if that'll happen, I will try to finally catch up on some of your Dear Carry questions. So final reminder, this is your last week to uh, reply to my annual listener survey and, and maybe get a free physical copy of my book sent to your doorstep. Again, that's fdsd.me slash survey 2024. I very much appreciate your feedback. I read every single response, and I promise to at least consider all the feedback you give me. I've got a lot of great stuff planned, so if you have not already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and then you won't miss any of it. So that'll do it this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>